Is it important to get vitamin D sulfate specifically from the sun? In this episode, I dig into some of Stephanie Seneff's writings on the topic. This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. All right, the, the winning question comes from Art H with 39 votes. And my summary of his question is, is it important to get vitamin D sulfate specifically from the sun? His full question goes like this, sunlight vitamin D versus supplement vitamin D. Vitamin D sulfate is a water-soluble form of vitamin D that is produced by sunlight. Vitamin D supplements provide a non-sulfated form that require LDLs for transport. Stephanie Seneff says, sulfate deficiency is the most common nutritional deficiency you've never heard of. Basically, Seneff maintains that vitamin D, that the D sulfate does, quote, the real work in fighting off chronic disease, while supplemental D is primarily involved in calcium regulation. Are we missing out on some of, if not most important benefits of vitamin D by relying mostly on supplementation, especially in northern climates? Does this Seneff hypothesis have merit? Should we really attempt to maximize UVD UV-based vitamin D production? If so, what is the ideal balance of UV-synthesized vitamin D to supplemental vitamin D? Given the difficulty in maintaining adequate UV exposure in the North, even in summer, are there non-harmful alternative methods for achieving adequate D sulfate levels, such as artificial UV exposure, for example, a spurty vitamin D sunlamp or Elios lamp or Solios, not yet available for home use? Thank you. And in case that was too much, I'll go back to my summary, which is, is it important specifically to get vitamin D sulfate and to specifically get that from the sun? Now, this is derived from Stephanie Seneff's work, and I love Stephanie, and um, I've I've interviewed her on my show in the past. Uh, her Her most popular article on this topic is published in the Weston A. Price Journal, April 20th, 2020. Uh, at least that's when it appeared online. And it's sunlight and vitamin D. They're not the same thing. Now, I'm relying partly on that for my discussion, but I'm also partly relying on an article that, an earlier article that she cites in there that is peer reviewed and more technical in its discussion. And this is published in the journal Entropy in 2012, and the title is, Is Endothelial Nitric Oxide Synthase a Moonlighting Protein Whose Day Job is Cholesterol Sulfate Synthesis? Implications for Cholesterol Transport, Diabetes, and Cardiovascular Disease. And she actually references this article in the beginning of her Weston A. Price article as kind of uh, summarizing the technical evidence in support of the general theme that she's that she's talking about here. And so the reason I'm going to go back to it is I, I think some of her thesis is stated a little bit more clearly there. So if you if you go through just taking these two articles together, what are they saying? So as background, I would refer you to the October Masterpass AMA where I talked about glutathione intolerance, where I went into detail on sulfur metabolism. And one aspect of sulfur metabolism covered in the October AMA is very central to what Senef is saying about sunlight. And that is 
the fact that hydrogen sulfide gas is metabolized to sulfite, which is toxic, in a multi-step process that includes the coenzyme Q10 dependent. Uh, ah, I'm missing this from my notes. It's uh, the coenzyme Q10 dependent and glutathione dependent ultimate conversion of thios, uh, thiosulfate to sulfite, sulfite, and then the molybdenum dependent conversion of the sulfite to sulfate. Um, so Seneth intersects this with something else I've talked about elsewhere. So in my article, Protecting Against Spike Protein Toxicity with Sulfur, Selenium, and Sunlight, I covered how nitric oxide binds to glutathione, which becomes a reservoir for either of them. And nitric oxide, the setup doesn't go into this uh, part of the detail, but nitric oxide also binds to proteins. And this plays an important role in the inflammatory opening up of epithelial barriers because the nitrosylation of those proteins causes them to with, causes the proteins that make junctions between cells in epithelial barriers to withdraw into the cell opening up uh so the it's no longer a barrier and there are now wide gaps between the cells and that's an important part of the inflammatory process because it allows inflammatory cells as well as very large molecules that would otherwise not be able to easily transport into the cell or um, or get between the cell. It now allows those things to just pass through in between the cells. Of course, it can be pathological if it persists beyond the inflammatory context. And from my angle, when I was discussing that, what I what I was saying was that sunlight can help restore the epithelial barriers, at least as far as the wavelengths are able to penetrate, so especially in the skin, because sunlight, uh, you, ultraviolet light as well as blue light and to a lesser extent green light will make nitric oxide be released from those proteins, and therefore the proteins will go back between the cells and reform the barrier. That was my angle for that role of sunlight. Seneff's angle is different. Seneff says that by releasing nitric oxide, she focuses not on the proteins, but from, from glutathione. So nitric oxide is also released from glutathione, uh, from the nitro, nitrosoglutathione molecule to form free nitric oxide and free glutathione. When you are exposed to sunlight, again, in the skin as far as <clears throat> those wavelengths of light will penetrate. And <clears throat> what she says is that then releases glutathione, which now becomes more available for the, for the conversion of hydrogen sulfide gas into sulfate. And so, therefore, it should be the case that sunlight is a key driver of sulfate production in the skin in the layers of skin to which those wavelengths of light will penetrate. Now, she says that the role of that sulfate in her model is to be bound to cholesterol. And this not only increases the exchange of cholesterol transport between different membranes of different cells, 
but it also allows water-soluble transport of the cholesterol in the blood. But more importantly, and where, where she goes into the technical detail is, is much more in the Entropy article. Um, she says that there are a variety of things that cholesterol sulfate does, bio- positive biological roles in cells. And this is this is mainly based on a series of studies where cholesterol sulfate was used to treat cells and come out with some desirable effect of the cholesterol sulfate. Now, vitamin D is derived from cholesterol, not not from cholesterol exactly. It's derived from 7-dehydrocholesterol, which is one step upstream from the synthesis of the final cholesterol molecule, but it shares the basic ring structure of cholesterol and all the steroid hormones. And so in vitamin D synthesis, you have a breaking of the ring and you have an oxidation step. But vitamin D, because it's derived from 7-dehydrocholesterol, has a very similar core structure to cholesterol as well as to the steroid hormones. It is not the same structure, but it is similar largely. As a result of that, Seneth argues that vitamin D sulfate produced from produced in the skin as a result of and then in the nearby vasculature as a result of sulfate rele- uh, released from sunlight may act to mimic cholesterol sulfate in in me- uh, membranes and do essentially the same thing. Now and let me let me just read a, a quote from her entropy paper. So she says, while the benefits of sun exposure have always been attributed to vitamin D3, we propose here that the true benefit instead is the cholesterol sulfate production in the skin. Interestingly, the vitamin D3 that is produced in the skin is also sulfated. And we suggest that vitamin D3 sulfate may be beneficial as a cholesterol sulfate mimetic. A mimetic is something that mimics something else chemically. The sulfated form of vitamin D3 is inactive for calcium transport. We further suggest that this distinction may explain the failure of placebo-controlled experiments using unsulfated vitamin D3 supplements to show clear benefits in cardiovascular disease. So let me review it up to this point. I agree with her that sunlight should increase sulfate production in the skin. I would point out that, and this doesn't nullify the importance of that, I would point out that most sulfate production in the body occurs in the liver from sulfur amino acids. And the key driver of total body sulfate is the intake of sulfur amino acids. These are found in all, almost all, well, they're found in all proteins. They're found. You're, they're significant in almost all proteins, and they are twice as abundant in most animal proteins compared to most plant proteins. Generally, they're more abundant in the meat proteins than in collagen. Uh, primarily, they are found in, in meat proteins, and the meat. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. Dairy products and eggs are the highest, and then the and then the meat proteins come after that, and those collectively are, on average, they're double the sulfur amino acid content of plant protein. So that's the key driver of sulfate. Now that's not to say that sulfate production from sunlight uh, uh, releasing 
nitric oxide from the nitrosoglutathione, making glutathione available to convert uh, hydrogen sulfide gas to sulfate. It's not to say that that's not significant locally, but in terms of the transport of things in the blood, I really doubt that that is a main driver of the sulfated compounds that are being transported into the blood because quantitatively, most sulfate is coming from the liver from sulfur amino acids. And so therefore, most most sulfation quantitatively is going to take place in the liver. So I, I think that this might be relevant locally, uh, but is is not quantitatively that important systemically. The other thing I would point out is, although sulfate can allow cholesterol and vitamin D to be transported in the blood water solubly, for vitamin D, that is basically totally irrelevant because vitamin D's normal mode of transport is not in lipoproteins. It is bound to vitamin D binding protein. And yes, you do get some transient absorption of vitamin D from the skin in, into um excuse me, from the diet in, into lipoproteins and eventual transfer into vitamin D binding protein. Uh, but that is more of a sequential time-dependent transfer, not a case of it can't be carried in the blood outside of lipoproteins. It absolutely can, and it will be, by vitamin D binding protein, which water solubilizes it. So there is zero whatsoever need for vitamin D to be carried in a water-soluble manner outside of lipoproteins in the blood by sulfate. That is not to say that um, you know, that vitamin D sulfate might might not be transported differently. It it may well have direct exchange with cell membranes in the way that cholesterol sulfate does in these in vitro experiments that Seneth is citing because of its similarity in structure, as Seneth is pointing out, that that's plausible. I don't know that it's that it's ever been shown to be true, but it is but it's plausible, right? Um, so from a whole body sulfate production perspective, from a whole body circulating sulfated compound perspective, and from a vitamin D being carried outside of lipoproteins perspective, none of this really has any relevance. However, it might be very relevant in the in the local skin layers and and microvasculature where sunlight has an impact on sulfate production. And it might have some uh, role of how vitamin D specifically is transported. But I would go back to the fact that Senef is basically making vitamin D a sideshow because if the importance of vitamin D in this context is that it can mimic what cholesterol sulfate is doing, then it is not actually that important to have the vitamin D sulfate because it's interchangeable with the cholesterol sulfate. So she's not outlining a specific effect of vitamin D sulfate. She's just saying it might do the same thing as cholesterol sulfate, and therefore maybe the vitamin D sulfate effectively gives you more of the cholesterol sulfate effect. That strikes me as vitamin D being kind of a sideshow to her hypothesis, and it also strikes me as making vitamin D sulfate a sideshow to the main vitamin D story, which is about all the things that vitamin D is known to do at the vitamin D receptor. Now, she says in that quote that, that um, vitamin D sulfate is inactive towards cholesterol transport, but I believe she is casting that somewhat more narrowly than it should. Uh, for the second day in a row, there is a helicopter 
hanging out outside my apartment and I have no idea what it's doing there. Just hanging out there. Anyway, it's distracting me. Okay. Some people on Twitter suggested that I said something, said a thought crime or something like that. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so distracting. Okay. So, I believe she's stating this not active in calcium metabolism somewhat more narrowly than it should be stated. So, what happened was way back in the 1960s, vitamin D sulfate was shown to be made in the liver and to be present in urine and milk. And there was some speculations about whether it was active or not. But by the 1980s, very well-designed experiments were done. And it became consensus that vitamin D sulfate has no classical vitamin D activity. And you can cast that as no activity towards calcium metabolism. But the reality is that vitamin D binding to the vitamin D receptor is responsible for the primary classical vitamin D effects on calcium metabolism. And so what that means is that vitamin D sulfate cannot bind to the vitamin D receptor, and therefore it has no activity towards any of the vitamin D activities that are attributable to the vitamin D receptor, including in the immune response, including regulating vitamin D dependent, vitamin A and D dependent vitamin K activated proteins in the vasculature, things that I've talked about. Vitamin D sulfate, uh, to our knowledge, possesses none of those activities. Now, if you go back to Seneff's work on in the Western Price article, it's basically a series of showing discrepancies between correlations with vitamin D status and randomized trials of vitamin D, showing there is this persistent effect where we think something is driven by vitamin D status, but then we do a trial of vitamin D supplementation and it doesn't bear out. And I believe she's overgrouping this these negative results to say that vitamin D just affects calcium metabolism and vitamin D sulfate does all of these positive things through mimicking cholesterol sulfate and not through what is what can be inferred from what she's saying is not through acting on the vitamin D receptor. I, I think that's definitely not true because we know that vitamin D acting on the vitamin D receptor, which vitamin D sulfate cannot do, does so many other things besides calcium metabolism. So I think that she, I think she has isolated a thing that may well be true and is a very interesting and worthy hypothesis, but there has to be more to what vitamin D non-sulfate does than calcium metabolism, because we know there is through an enormous body of work, and there has to be more to, more than this, to why vitamin D status epidemiological studies and vitamin D randomized trials uh, are not showing the same results. So there are, are many issues here. So one form of observational evidence for vitamin D is correlations with 25-OHD, the principal marker of nutritional status. Another is ecological studies with latitude. Now, the ecological study is the least useful study for human nutrition or human health in general because humans get diseases, groups don't. 
uh, humans become healthy, groups don't. And so you can have a group effect because of something that's impacting the whole group, but it's still happening at the level of the individual. Nevertheless, if you're looking at latitude, there are obviously other differences with vitamin D. So first of all, there is a different amount of heat and a different distribution of heat at the equator. There is a completely different set of plants and animals that abound in equatorial regions versus temperate regions versus Arctic regions. Vitamin D status being higher there is driven by UVB, and UVB has phototherapeutic effects in the skin, although it also has negative effects such as destroying riboflavin and folate. It still has phototherapeutic effects such as regulating the proliferation of skin cells, which is very relevant in psoriasis, and fortifying the, the epithelial barrier, as I was saying at the beginning. So all of those things can be relevant to the health endpoints that are driven by latitude, you know, not to mention you know, completely different microorganisms. And you could go on and on and on and on with all the things that are different between the equatorial zones, temperate zones, and the Arctic zones, and everywhere in between. Now, when you're dealing with observational studies with 25-OHD, you have additional problems, which is 25-OHD does not just go up and down with vitamin D status. It also goes up and down with other things such as inflammation. You know, so getting injured drives down vitamin D status. Having surgery drives down vitamin D status. Getting infected drives down vitamin D status. Chronic inflammation drives down vitamin D status. Obesity drives down vitamin D status, right? So there are so many reasons for discrepancies between the 25-OHD observational studies and the vitamin D randomized trials that to pin it all on any one hypothesis cannot possibly be true. Maybe each of these things account for 10 or 20%, but they are all accounting for some portion of that discrepancy. At the end of the day, that discrepancy is the primary reason that evidence that Senef is using to support the vitamin D sulfate theory. Um, and the vitamin D sulfate, it having any positive role really relies on Senef's argument that the structural similarity could allow it to be a mimetic for cholesterol sulfate, in which case it's not even necessary because you're going to get cholesterol sulfate from the skin anyway. And you just, it happens to be incidental that you will also get vitamin D sulfate. So, this really is about local sulfate in the skin and microvasculature of the skin and really is not part of the vitamin D story in my eyes. Now, you know, I, would say, I would say this, shifting to just my view on the general topic. Little work has been done since the 1980s on vitamin D sulfate and its significance. It remains unclear whether it has non-classical bio biologically active roles is an important ex excretory product. Maybe it's just meant to make it more water-soluble to leave in the urine, or maybe it's meant to be desulfated under certain contexts as a reservoir for vitamin D. All those could be true in addition to what Senef is saying. I do find it very plausible that some vitamin D sulfate is made in the skin. I'm open to the possibility that cholesterol sulfate is specifically important and that vitamin D sulfate can 
mimic some of its properties. But I also do not see ample reason to conclude that either of these are true to the point that I would design my health practices around them. Seneff's argument does not seem to make vitamin D sulfate very important and, and if it is simply mimicking the main benefit of sunlight, cholesterol sulfate. Vitamin, I, I think there's more to sunlight than that. And I was going through some of those reasons before. Antimicrobial effects, epithelial barrier strengthening effects, regulation of proliferation effects in the skin, and so on. Not to mention that just going outside is beneficial for fresh air. It correlates with the sunlight. Sunlight has very important effects on the circadian rhythm, and so on and so forth. I would say that it is absolutely beneficial and irreplaceable to seek outdoor sunlight in the morning for circadian rhythm, regardless of cloudiness. You know, you can, maybe if it's raining, you don't go out, but otherwise you do. And it's desirable to get some modest, unprotected sun exposure regularly during times where the UV index is meaningful, but it is not so intense as to burn you given your quantity of, of exposure. And you generally do not need to seek sun to the point even of mild redness. I agree with Seneth in her Weston A. Price article that it is ideal in temperate zones where you have a spring and a winter and a fall to get early sun exposure in the spring, gradually develop a tan, and use that as your primary protection for the summer. Beyond your tan, your summer protection should primarily be clothing, and you should avoid chemical sunscreens when you don't need them. I advocate strictly avoiding any chance of sunburn and avoiding all intermittent clunky random exposure to the sun, right? Being indoors all day and then going to the beach for eight hours on a random day off in the summer is an utterly stupid way to get sun exposure. And you probably need to be completely fully clothed or have a very high SPF sunlight sunscreen if you do that. But no one with a health practice designed around the sun should ever do anything like that your sun exposure should be regular and gradual through the year. If you live near the equator, it doesn't matter with the seasonality so much. But if you if you live in a zone with alternation of seasons, you need to start getting sunlight when the UV index starts going above zero. And you need to have a regular gradual tan develop leading you into the summer. And you need to and you need to get your sun exposure within that regularity. And when you have a deviation from that regularity, you need to use some form of protection. It is better to use clothing than, than to use sunscreen. You know, But if your deviation is going to be sunbathing at the beach all day, then a chemical sunscreen, I think, is, is where you need to go if you haven't been following that practice in a way that will prevent burning without it. Um, you know, there are so many reasons for this, and maybe cholesterol sulfate, maybe vitamin D sulfate is are some of them, but there are many others, and I think this basic practice of sun exposure is a non-negotiable health practice. And whether Seneth is right or part right or not right about her hypothesis, I don't think is going to change that the practical implications of how to get sunshine are a non-negotiable health practice. This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ MasterPass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. 
If you want to become a MasterPass member so that you can participate in the next live Q&A, or so that you can have access to the complete recording and transcript of each Q&A session, you can join at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash masterpass. You can save 10% off the subscription price for as long as you remain a member by signing up at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com slash Q&A. That's Q&A spelled out as Q-A-N-D-A. These links are in the description.